0: Thanks, Judy, and good afternoon, everyone. I'm Deb Hastings. I'm the Director of Continuing Nursing Education, and I'm really happy to uh, welcome you all this afternoon. I'm looking around the room. A pretty um, diverse uh, group of professionals here, so welcome to all of you. I would also like to welcome anyone who's viewing online, and the program is being recorded. If you are watching the presentation live from afar and have a question, Judy will be uh, monitoring her email. She will relay the question to the speaker, and her email is judith.m, as in May, dot Langhans, .langhans, at hitchcock.org. You must attend at least 80% of this program to receive credit, and you will earn one contact hour. We want you to know that neither our speaker nor anyone on the planning committee has identified a financial interest or relationship with a commercial entity or any conflict of interest regarding this activity, and no one refused to disclose. Today's program is entitled The Business Case for Gender Equity, and our learning outcome for today's presentation is as follows. At the conclusion of this activity, you will be able to recommend to to organizations, interventions that may make a difference in diversity. presentation will explore pay and leadership gaps facing women in healthcare, including interventions that improve leader diversity. And although um, this is a topic different from what we have offered in uh, past Octobers, when we have featured issues related to uh, intimate partner or domestic violence. We chose to showcase this topic because it's a different way of viewing inequity, uh, perhaps from a more global perspective. Um, because of the culture in which we live and, and where we've grown up, we've all experienced uh, inequity and lack of diversity in many ways. This is a different way, again, of viewing this issue. The American Association of University Women, or AAUW, is the nation's leading voice promoting equity in education for women and girls. And I share the following quote taken from the AAUW website. The entitled, it is entitled, Why Should We Care About Women Leaders? Having gender equality at the top benefits everyone. It's good for both men and women to shift stereotypical ideas around gender roles. Just as the status quo is holding women back from leadership roles, it is holding men back from embracing caretaking and support roles. It's good for families, whether they rely on women as the sole breadwinners or share a two earner income. It's good for business to draw on the creativity of a a diverse staff and recognize the purchasing power of women. It's good for the country because the more diverse the pool, the more talented our leaders will be. Our speaker for this session of Nursing Grand Rounds really needs no introduction. Dr. Joanne Conroy is President and CEO of Dartmouth-Hitchcock. In June of this year, Dr. Conroy was named one of the 50 most influential clinical executives by Modern Healthcare Magazine. She is also one of the founders of Women of Impact, a national organization advocating for development of women leaders in healthcare. We're thrilled to host her to here today. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Conroy to the podium.
1: Great. Thank you. Can everybody hear me? Mm-hmm. I'll probably talk from this side. So um mm-hmm. couple things I just want to kind of level the playing field. When we talk about gender equity and the advancement of women leaders, it's not to the um, detriment of male leaders. I I think that's really important to talk about that. Um, There is room for both of us. And I think sometimes we fall into this win-lose situation when we talk about gender equity and advancing women leaders. Um, without appreciating that the teams, as identified by the University of Women's organization, the teams actually function at a much higher level when they're diverse from both a gender as well as an ethnic racial perspective. And um, I just want to make that clear. You know, I do get a little bit of hate mail from <laughs> the internal organizations. They sign their names, so it is not that offensive. Um, You know, I have had some men write and say, why do you talk about women in leadership so often? Why don't you talk about men in leadership? I get it. Because I I think their expectation is is an either or. Um, I remind them that's not an either or, that it's kind of an and. We all lift each other up. Um, But also, we can have a different conversation when we actually have equity at the top, which we haven't achieved yet. So um, every single, I will still continue to talk about um, gender equity in healthcare and writ large across you know, the country, because I think it just makes us stronger as a country. Now, one of my favorite books this year is written by Melinda Gates, and it's called The Moment of Lift. I don't know if any of you have read it, but I can tell you it is absolutely worth your time. Um, Melinda Gates is Catholic and yet she starts her book out talking about the importance of family planning, (laughs) Planned Parenthood, especially in developing countries where when women cannot choose how and when to have their children, it becomes more and more difficult for them to actually um, be productive and be leaders within their communities and within their countries. And what's fascinating is the um, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation has really shifted most of their funding to actually supporting women globally, so they can actually participate as productive citizens in their country. And they've really identified some really unique ways to unleash this. For example, I think they did some work in Sub-Saharan Africa. And they were talking to the men about farming principles. And nothing changed. And they realized that most of the farmers were women. And they couldn't come to those conversations because they were farming. And so they figured out how to actually get to the women that were actually doing the work. And once they had done that, all of a sudden, they started to see tremendous productivity in terms of their agricultural output in those areas. So it is really fascinating when you read this book. And she actually talks about her you know, internal and her external conflict with the Catholic Church about um, family planning and how important she thinks it is for really the future of women across the world. But what they have found is that when you lift women up, when you help them be a productive member of these communities and these countries, the countries become more financially stable, communities become stable, and they become healthier. They become healthier. And that is really one of their areas of focus, is how can they actually improve health across the world? But we'll ratchet back. We'll talk about the United States, where you would think we wouldn't, keep having this conversation. We've only been having it, I think, for over 100 years. But we're just starting to really get data and to effectively really talk to people about the real business case. And there is a business case for diversity. I can tell you that here at Dartmouth-Hitchcock, our board is actually really, really good at thinking about diversity on our board. And um, we had a situation where um, we could have added a female board member or a male board member. They were both incredibly talented. But the board said, if we don't increase our number of women above a certain amount, we really have a less functional board because your board should be about 30% female. Um, We know that in order to really make the best decisions. And so even our board is kind of becoming more and more attuned to the fact that diversity at every level, at your board, at your CEO level, at your C-suite level, and many levels through the organization, they just benefit from diversity. Now, nursing is 80% women across the country. And you say, well, what does this mean for us? Um, It does mean embracing diversity, having men um, at nursing leadership levels. Getting as diverse as we can on racial and ethnic backgrounds, you would just make far better decisions for the organization and for our patients. You know, we're ultimately doing this though for our kids. Now I don't have any kids, but I've got nieces and nephews and I'm a tireless advocate for every single one of them having the most um, productive personal and professional life possible. I was really fortunate that my dad was kind of like, you can do whatever you want. In fact, a, a little um, confidential secret: my father did actually—he did not want me to get married because he thought that would get in the way of my career. Now, that that might not be something that everybody hears at home, but you know, my dad was really—he was very focused on that. And um, I would say every single uh, person in my family was really thoughtful about actually having a career and, um, and you know really it's something that's professionally and personally satisfying. But we're really, we're doing it for our nieces, our nephews, our daughters, our granddaughters, so they can actually have as much professional and personal success that we've all experienced. Now, this is a fabulous video.
2: Thing. We'll
1: talk about it afterwards. Finish what you Yeah. Yeah, I had did I you
3: the in the last little Good. So it <laughs>
2: You're
3: going to and the we that. a drug. That's a Tep-
2: lite, folk, ja. Det er jo blitt
1: but yeah, I am that in and i
2: see it's
1: on those kids' faces. The girls immediately seen the fact that they didn't receive the same reward. But you could see the boys and young men saying, wow, this is not right. And they, they knew it wasn't right, and they were rectifying. So what happens? What happens when, as adults, we look the other way? And we do. So how can we actually take a really important lesson from kids and say, you know, it's not right. It is, people are doing equal work, and they should be paid equally. Again, I just want to emphasize, this is <laughs> not an either or. We're not saying that we deserve more and men deserve less. It, but it is equal. And um, I think that is, um, we have to keep saying that because for many people it, they feel that if one person gets more the other person has to get less and um, when you get back to the principle of being fair and appropriate compensation for the same work um, this is where we want to be we know that In industry, there's better financial performance, so companies that have a higher percentage of executive women have a 34% higher total shareholder return. That has been demonstrated again and again and again over the last 20 years. We know that companies with the most women directors outperform return on invested capital by 26%, and that's why we are committed to having at least 30% of our board be women. And we know that the financial performance of U.S. companies with at least three women on the board. You have to have at least three, Um, because otherwise you have one, you have a token. Two, not quite enough to really resonate with each other. But three women on a board, all of a sudden their voices start being heard. Um, But they have median gains return on equity 11% higher. And 40% higher per share earnings than companies with no women directors. And I can tell you it's even more powerful when you get diversity on your boards. In 2014, um, 800 US retail and hospitality industry business units found that gender diverse business units have better financial performance and it was dramatically better for those that were also highly engaged. And again, at least one woman on their board outperformed their peer group by 26%. McKinsey is the organization that's really been gathering this data for almost 20 years. And we actually are a member of the McKinsey Healthcare Work Group. So we deliver all of our data to McKinsey on an annual basis. We have joined something called the Equity Collaborative where we are going to try interventions and then have our data compared to outside healthcare organizations to see if our groups are performing any better because we've committed to certain things within the organization that we know will actually help increase both gender and racial diversity within our leadership. And again, we know that not only did they perform better in 2014, but we know that it just gets even more powerful in 2017, and they just published their 2019 report. And they, these are sequential reports that just really emphasize the power of gender and ethnic diversity. But um, beyond profitability, it's all about workforce. You know, at 57% <laughs> of college graduates are women why would we alienate such a large portion of our workforce? Why in the world would you only look at 50% of your possible workers for development and leadership? Um, And you know what? We know that companies with a higher proportion of senior women um, might perform better, but. They're equally valuable leadership characteristics that are very different between women and men. Um, We know that women are um, probably a lot more collaborative. We've done an analysis of leadership skills. Um, Men often are more command and control. There is a place for every single one of those skills. I don't know if any of you were here in 2016 when we had a pretty serious financial issue. You know what? I have to say, sometimes you just have to do command and control because you've got to get stuff done. Women and men both have those skills and are able to execute on it. But there's also a role for collaborative skills and to really bring teams together and make decisions in a different way. And women do have many more strengths in those areas. And that's not to—that's a really broad brush stroke because we have some men that are great at that too, but. Um, in general, when we do um, large assessments of leadership skills across large populations. Another thing that industries have to think about is who decide, who makes the decisions based on gender in households. And there's some really interesting things. For vacations, almost always made by the woman. Uh, vehicles. Actually, 60% of women make the decision about the car they buy. Um, Homes, 91%. Consumer electronics, 51%. And healthcare decisions, 80%. Now, I want to kind of preface this by saying this data on healthcare was actually gathered around who makes healthcare decisions for children. And um, 80% of healthcare decisions for children are made by the female in the household. Um, when we talk about healthcare decisions writ large, men are getting a lot better and making their own healthcare decisions, but it doesn't drop by that much. And um, so, still, the vast majority of healthcare decisions are made by um, the woman in the house. And these are the leadership behaviors where um, you know men can be um, decisive when necessary. They have a lot of strengths there. They have a lot of command and control. Um, but women are actually very comfortable um, with participative decision-making. Um, so we all have different strengths, and um, we, we can all have different strengths in each of these categories. Um, and we just have to figure out when to deploy certain strengths in order to be an effective leader. now The American dream about work hard, get a good education, get ahead, doesn't really work for women right now. And we still get paid 77 cents on the dollar that men get paid writ large across the country. And they, gaps, pay gaps, actually occur at every single level. Um, There is a mommy penalty that's real um, when you look at how women are paid. So when we talk about the business case, we say, how big is the problem? Is it worse than healthcare? What's getting in our way? What strategies work? And what are you going to do beginning tomorrow, knowing what you'll know at the end of this? So meritocracy is important, but it's not yet achieved. You know what? If we were paid equitably across the country, every woman on average would have another $500,000 in her lifetime. Now, aside from that money in their pocket and what that could do for their families, um, there's also something else. When you actually pay women equitably, you move a lot more money through the economy. I mean, that's what they're looking at in developing countries in Africa and um, in Asia, that when we pay women equitably, your economy runs on how much money we move through. So imagine how much more money would move through the economy if we actually paid them in equitably. That means that people buy more services, they invest in things, it's, it actually drives the economy of a lot of countries. Education is not a remedy for inequity, and we see inequities everywhere. We see it in law, we see it in medicine, We see it in finance, and, you know, the gender pay gap is really about the same. Um, It's, you know, between 77 and 79 cents on a dollar. What happens as well is we never make up that gap. So when you look at your um, time in the workforce and your median earnings by age and gender, you know, we, everybody kind of, Plateaus off, up at like 35 to 40, 40 years. Um, and then, but women never, they just don't keep going. We plateau as well at about 79 cents a dollar. And minority women, and this is a real issue, make far less than Caucasian women. Um, if you look at the amount um, Hispanic, African American, there are Caucasians, Asian women, um, American Indian, Native um, Hawaiian, and then white men. You know, it's fascinating. When I was at the Medical University of South Carolina, I did a um, year adjusted, rank adjusted salary survey of all the faculty across the institution. And we actually found inequities, believe it or not, in the research component of what we did for Asian women. And it was fascinating that they were actually underpaid significantly at the university. And we had some African-American women that were paid above the rank-adjusted, year-adjusted median for their role. And um, that's why it's really important to actually do these salary surveys to just make sure you know what your data is. For all of our physicians, we actually do a gender equity salary assessment every single year to make sure that we don't have any gaps in compensation. At the medical university, I have to say, when I did the analysis and brought it to the strategic planning committee, you know, they had assigned me um, the role of leading the team on diversity for the strategic plan. That was probably a mistake. And um, so I show up with this 180-page report. But I have to say, they stepped up and they actually made those women whole that were more than 20% below the um, rank-adjusted, role-adjusted median for their specialty. Um, And the pay gap hasn't really budged in a long time. That's the thing. So we have we have this persistent pay gap that we're um, really seem to be ineffective in closing, and you know, corporate America is um, really not at any better path. You know, I have this group, Women of Impact, and we actually support women leaders and really are champions for gender equity. Um, But we realize it's almost 100 years until we actually have equal numbers in the C-suite. And I'm not sure we want to wait that long. There's a business case that's compelling for us to really accelerate women through the leadership paths. Um, And a lot of it is not explained. I'm going to tell you that people will say, well, people stop to have their children and women um, you know have different needs in terms of their work-life balance, and there are a lot of excuses, but all of these studies actually um, Adjust for that and we still have a pay gap even when you take all of that into account um, These are some of the things occupational segregation you know, women <coughs> seek roles that are um, higher touch and those pay less Um, management positions have some of the largest pay differences, and they say, well, women don't want to step into the management role. But the motherhood penalty is real. When we track women's compensation through their career, they actually take a salary cut when they have their families. And men, when they have their families, actually get a bonus. And those are just some of the real data-driven things that we need to address. Um, And if you look at the percentage in our healthcare workforce, our board governance, our hospital CEOs, and the CEOs of academic medical centers, we still make up a very, very small percentage of that leadership. And why is that important? Because those leaders can actually make a difference. They can change how the organization recruits and advances both women and minorities throughout the institution. So academic medicine, women face similar challenges. Um, and you know, sometimes these challenges are even a little bit more pervasive uh, because there's a reputational aspect of how these women move through their careers. And um, and I'm very sensitive to this, that if a female resident wants to... Um, bring something to our attention that is some inequity that's happening in their department. And it becomes known that she was the person that brought that forward. Who is gonna recommend her for her next job at another academic medical center or for a fellowship? So there's a different layer for women professionals that actually rely on um, a letter of recommendation Or a personal recommendation to get their next job. And that keeps people quiet. And I think we heard that with the college's issues around um, the lawsuit that I think is almost finally settled. Those women had a hard time speaking up because they depended on um, the people that, that were creating this hostile work environment. They depended on them for recommendations. Um, So another another layer. I think the career impediments for women, though, deprive the nation of an important source of talent, let's be honest. 57% of the college graduates and 51% of the adults in the country. Um, While progress has occurred in the years, it's probably too slow. And many people are content with the status quo. Almost half of men think that if you just have one woman on your senior team, you're good. And only about a third of women would agree with that. And we know you've got to have at least three women. I know that if we have a leadership job and we have three candidates, if we only have one woman, she is not going to get the job. But I know if we have two candidates out of the three that are women, she has a much better chance of being selected for that job. Um, there are. Guests. Good morning, guys. It's Tuesday.
2: So, a while back, I said in the video In the United States, women make 77 cents for every dollar that men make in the workforce. And a lot of people push back in the comments you know, the wage gap is a lie, that myth has been debunked, you're an idiot with no apostrophe, etc. Anyway, now, after a lot of reading, I'm going to attempt to share what I have learned about the gender pay gap, hopefully without inciting a war in the comments. Yes. This whole question is fiendishly complex, and people far smarter than I have spent their whole careers devoted to it. But I want to begin with a broad observation. There is a gender pay gap among full-time workers around the world. But the size of the gender pay gap varies dramatically by country. Like in New Zealand, women working full-time make on average 90 cents for every dollar that a man working full-time makes. Whereas in South Korea, that number is just 62 cents. When we come to calculating the pay gap in the United States, a lot depends on what exactly you're calculating. Like by hourly wage, the pay gap is about 16%. By weekly day, Home pay is between 18 and 19%. By annual earnings, it's around 21%. The fuzziness here speaks to the complexity of what we're about to get into. But basically, men on average work more hours than women on average. Actually, no, they don't. But men work more paid hours. Right. So this 16 to 21% number just looks at all full-time workers. It doesn't account for differences in education or skills or experience or occupation. When well, you factor all that stuff in, the pay gap shrinks to somewhere between four and eight percent depending on who's doing the math. This is the so-called unexplained pay gap, that is, there is no economic explanation for it, and most nonpartisan analyses agree that this part of the pay gap is directly due to gender discrimination. By the way, you can find links to lots of sources in the new video. But yeah, that 48% number might sound low, but even on the extremely conservative end, it it would mean that women lose over $241 million of pay every year to direct discrimination. discrimination. I should add you that there is also a wide racial pay gap in the United States, and as discussed in this blog, Video, there is overwhelming evidence that much of that gap is due to direct discrimination. Because race and gender affect people long before they enter the workforce, it's difficult to disentangle causes here, but we do know that women of color are doubly disadvantaged when it comes to pay, regardless of skill level, experience, or education. Right, so a portion of the gender wage gap is attributable to discrimination in the United States, but most of it is ostensibly about choice. Choice of college majors, or flexibility when it comes to hours, or occupation. And this is what people generally need when they talk about debunking the gender wage gap. Women on average work fewer hours and tend to work in less lucrative professions from school teaching to caregiving whereas men are more likely to work in higher paying fields like engineering or anesthesiology. And some of the pay gap can be found here. Like in one study, more than 120 professions, more women than men worked in nine of the ten lowest paying jobs. So of course that isn't only about choice, it's also about the expectations of the social order. Like why are there more female nurse anesthetists, but more male anesthesiologists? And then there's the fact that even within almost all of these professions, the pay gap persists from computer programmers to teachers to lawyers. So this is the aforementioned unexplained pay gap, but some of it is because men on average work more paid hours than women, which brings us to the question of unpaid work. The average adult American woman spends 167 minutes per day on housework or care for household members. For the average adult American male, it's 101 minutes per day. And that work, even though it's unpaid, is of course very real. Now none of this is to criticize the many women and many men who work fewer hours or don't work in the labor force at all to focus on child care or it's only to say that women doing a disproportionate amount of the unpaid labor in the United States inevitably distorts the paid labor market. We see this especially clearly in studies of what happens to workers after they have kids. With each child a family has, we can see their average income relative to men go down. It goes down about 7.5% after the first child. There are a ton of studies explaining this, but I just want to highlight one. In 2007, a Stanford professor sent out fictitious resumes to various firms and found that female applicants with children were less likely to be offered positions and when offered jobs were offered lower starting salaries. Men, meanwhile, actually seem to fare better after they have children in both employment opportunities and wages. This may also be part of the reason the pay gap gets worse over time. It's near 10% from young adulthood until about the age of 35 when it suddenly jumps up. Like one study looking at business school, graduates found that right out of school there was a relatively small gap but then eight years later it was much, much larger. And interestingly, even in careers dominated by women, men disproportionately advanced to supervisory roles. Like most librarians, are women, but male librarians are disproportionately likely to become library directors. And there are still large pay gaps within careers that employ mostly women from nursing to librarianship. In fact, unless you really cherry pick the data, a real and consistent gender pay gap exists across almost all fields at all education levels at all ages. And if the current rate of change this weekend won't close in the United States until 2058. in short, Hank, there is a gender pay gap, but it is not as simple as women making 77 or 79 cents for every dollar men make. Instead, it's an extremely complicated web of interwoven factors. Some of the pay gap is attributable to positive, empowered choices that individual women make to work less or to work in fields they find more fulfilling. Much of it is due to direct discrimination against women, especially mothers. And much of it is also due to the way our social order constructs gender and our expectations of women. And that is something we can change together by, for instance, embracing the idea that there's no reason for the social order to saddle women with most of the world's unpaid work. And we also examine the real personal and systemic biases that are distorting the way that we look at women in the workplace and outside. So the gender pay gap is complicated and it's integrated with many other socioeconomic phenomena, but make no mistake, it is real. Hank, I'll see you on Friday.
1: So that was the World Economic Forum. And in 2016, they commissioned that, to actually be the centerpiece of the World Economic Forum, when they were really focusing on equity in the workplace and trying to figure out how do they really accelerate the improvement of the economies, and the focus is doing it through empowering women. Um, you know what? There are some both structural, um, there are unconscious bias causes, and there are also environmental causes in all of our environments that we have to address in order to allow women to actually um, move much more quickly through the workforce. Um, In this study, they really identified that it was unconscious bias and lack of work-life balance that sometimes get in the way with women moving into leadership roles. Just talking a little bit about unconscious bias, um, and that's kind kind of the second bucket that we have to address. There are four kind of different drivers. Number one, there's an affinity bias. You look like me, I like you more. That's why I actually am not the only person that interviews people that work for me. I need to have other people interview them, and they often have very different perspective about the applicants than I do. But we do hire people that look like ourselves. And so it's very, very important to make sure that you have other people involved in the hiring process. Confirmation, this is when somebody does something that you already like them, but they do something to do it well. You like them even more. And you end up not actually seeing the things that they're not doing. So you have this real confirmation bias that you just continue to like them more and more. There's the halo effect that once somebody comes in and they do something great, they can do nothing wrong. And we know that our careers are actually made up by multiple series of achievements, and some we're going to do well and some we're not going to do well on. But this is a very common way to just really kind of see the halo of um, some of the you already like, that you have some confirmation bias, and they can do no wrong. But women often fall into the cloven hoof, which is uh, they're late for a meeting because they have to drop their kids off at daycare. That's their job, or they have to leave early to either pick them up or to attend some after-school sessions with their teachers. And you know, once you see somebody that does something you don't like, then you constantly see other things, and you don't see the things that they do that are really great. So there are a lot of biases that we're not even aware of that really reflect how we embrace people that work in our teams and how we value them. I would say it is not an ambition gap. I get this a lot in healthcare. They say women don't want to step into those leadership roles. There's nothing further from the truth. Women want those jobs, and they want the opportunity. Um, When you say... portion that asked for a promotion, exactly the same number. And yet the ones that got a promotion without asking are actually less than men. So I encourage all women to ask for promotions, ask for advancement, ask how you can be developed um, because your male counterparts are doing that. Um, what are the best practices? Um, McKinsey and the World (laughs) Economic Forum really did a fabulous job identifying financial incentives, technology, economic opportunity, capacity building. You see this in countries across the world. Now that they have, I think they have a a year of covered maternity leave, I think, in Sweden. Um, I think the UK requires that a certain number of board directors be women. Um, California, I think it's just required that all for profit boards have a woman on boards that are in California. Um, so there's many countries that are really far ahead of us in removing barriers for women. But I think the business pace, case is clear. The problem's big. It is worse in healthcare. A lot of factors get in our way, but there are strategies that work. So examine your leadership team. So we participate in the McKinsey Workforce study. We wanna see how we're doing compared to other healthcare systems that participate in the study. When we get into the structural unconscious bias or environment, so our structural, that's the recruitment process. So now we are, for our leadership positions, we're blinding our CVs. So you can't tell race or gender when you look at the CV. That's really important. Getting through that first cut of probably 75 applicants is the hardest you way. Know, most women, when they get to the end of the interview process, can do well, but you've gotta get an interview. And if you have 100 resumes, people are making snap decisions about who to bring forward, and often that is based on a lot of the unconscious bias so um, if we are, when we get really serious about new leadership positions, we're pretty careful at blinding CVs.
3: Joanne, can you clarify what you mean by we? And, um, so we're hiring a physician, a section chief, and
1: a an yeah, Probably less in um, the physician realm. But for example, when we were looking for um, Ralph Jean Marie's physician, we um, had probably 100 CVs and we blinded them all. Names were removed. Names, and even um, where they're educated. Sometimes for our physicians, um, they're uh, historically uh, black medical schools, and um, so you have to be kind of careful about making sure that people don't make snap judgments on people's pedigree. We do make those um, according to where they went to school. It really needs to be based on performance. So yeah, it, it's a little bit more onerous process, but um, when we actually have that you know, 100 CVs,
3: we make sure that it's all But know, that really probably basic. just applies to a small number of administrative positions currently, right?
1: Yeah, and the question is, can you actually uh, broaden that? And should you broaden it? Um, but I think that's a good point. You know, how do you, it, Right now, it's under HR when we actually run those searches. Um, when we work with our search firms, we are really specific about having diverse candidates and female candidates. I can tell you, uh, at our new London search, where we received over a hundred CVs for the CEO job, the three final candidates are two women and a man. So it will be. I think I think the process worked there. Um, we need to prioritize respect in our organizations. You know, people sense that when they get into the organization. Um, And that that is all about unconscious bias and just being conscious. You know, people have biases, but let's just be conscious and honest about them. And create visibility, recognition, and a seat at the table for everybody. People do look at what our organization looks like when they interview here. And I have not taken jobs when I met with the senior team and I noticed that there were no women, and everybody was old. I said, I don't I don't think they're ready for me. And, you know, I walked away from that job because it, you could just tell that it wasn't going to be the right environment to really create change. I would say, in the third bucket, which is the environment, we still have a lot of work to do on environment of care. I know we had this history of not allowing people to work part-time i think we have to reevaluate part-time work uh, for both men and women and um i get that it's more difficult and there are problems associated with it but frankly it's a talented workforce that if you actually allow people flexibility when they're bringing up their kids they'll give that back to you in you know two or threefold as a loyal employee, and we have to think about doing that. I have thought about free childcare. I have thought about how big of a game changer that would make in a very competitive market. And um, you know, those are the things that we have to think about. And frankly, when I brought that up, the woman from Hypertherm said, "Please do that because it will force the rest of us to do it in the Upper Valley." So you know, there. There are things that we need to look at to actually um, remove some of the barriers. I can tell you there are probably some micro-inequities in the organization. They're not illegal, but there are micro-inequities. And we've seen a few of them emerge. And we just need people to be aware of them and let us know that they're going on. They usually arise, they're not malicious, but they arise from some unconscious bias. And that may be meetings that are always held. At times when people are dropping their kids off at daycare, or they're always held after work hours and don't give women an opportunity to really participate in leadership. There may be um, some of our RVU focused um, specialties. Some of the women told us that they didn't have access to high RVU procedures in an equitable way. You know, that's not illegal, but you know, it's a micro inequity that is obvious to at least some of the female participants. Um, I think we still we have a long way to go, I would say, across the country and, even, and here at Dartmouth-Hitchcock. Um, but I've got to believe that if we actually create an environment where people from diverse backgrounds and everybody feels like they are valued, that their career is going to be promoted, regardless if they're a man or a woman. But We are committed to both of them, and when we identify some unconscious bias and some inequities that we address them, we could be the employer of choice. This is really a focus on how do you become the employer where people want to work here, and they will work here rather than other organizations who may, at face value, offer the same professional and personal opportunities, how do we make ourselves stand out as being an organization where people wanna work? I would say one of the things I'm really committed to is magnet. Um, my institutions have been magnet institutions. And um, I, I understand um, you know, all the issues. We've, we've gotta have a engagement score greater than 50% to even apply. So we've got a little ways to go. Nursing had significant improvements in engagement over the last two years. We still have probably three to five years to go, but MAGNET is a a framework to really um, elevate nursing within an organization, and it's an attractor to both young and experienced nurses. So, um, again, more work to do, but I think that should be one of our goals.
3: Over the next three to five years. Yeah. When I started working here 10 years ago, I really. We're recording and live web streaming, so if you (laughs) When I started working here 10 years ago, I was riding the uh, bus from Lot 20, which I know you did, and I I was blown away by how many women were on the bus. I think that most mornings it was, you know, uh, maybe 20 to 1 or whatever, maybe no men on the bus. And that was the first time I really started to realize that the institution is by very, very disproportionately um, employed or run by women. Right. But of course, the top heavy end of um, men at higher positions is really clear. And I don't think that's a um, reflection of DH, I think that's a reflection of many things, society, the upper valley, many, many things. But do you have a hold on what are our basic statistics? How many women are employed here compared to men? And I suspect, well, I wondered if anybody at the institution has their pulse or is the reporting point for pay discrepancies, very acute, very comparative ones. And I was thinking that a graph that would be so interesting to see would be a distribution of male, female employee versus uh, sort of on top of that, um, male and female pay rate and positions at higher levels. Yeah.
1: So actually, that's the data that we actually gave McKinsey. We give salary, we give gender, we give race at every single level within the organization. So they are all of our physicians, all of our nurses. Every single role is actually data dumped into McKinsey. So this is the first year that we've done that. And I think external comparators are really important in terms of I think we have – Amy does have the number in terms of just how many women versus men, but I actually believe it's like in the mid, early, like middle 70s, like a 72 to 75% of the people employed in the institution are women. And um, we, um, at least for the physicians, we've just started this year doing the, equity, gender equity, comparison on um, physicians at their role, their specialty, their rank adjusted, et cetera, et cetera. Um, one of the things that I think is still a flaw is we're looking at their clinical FTE. And you know what, if, if you um, work 0.8 or 0.7, um, I've always found women in part-time roles are far more productive because when they show up, they're there really to work hard um, and often they give you extra hours for the same percentage of their FTEs, so they're going to look more productive, um, and their pay is adjusted for that. So I I actually think there's some inherent flaws, but at least we're starting to do that. Um, I think in terms of our um, non-physician uh, staff, um, Amy does do that analysis to make sure that we have equity across Roles within the organization. And I think she feels pretty comfortable that we've addressed a lot of those. I think our challenge is leadership roles. Like, what does it look like? Who has access to leadership roles? And, um, you know, I I still hear people say, well, she, she has two kids. I'm like, that has nothing to do with it. You know, you need to evaluate people based on their performance. And as an employer, it's we we cannot um, we cannot just try to anticipate what their thought process is. If they're qualified, they need to be offered the role. So. Other questions. Good afternoon. I think not unrelated to your comment about facilitating having more part-time FTE in our provider population. Um, you know, we in nursing have lost some really wonderful uh, leaders, even, um, you know, who had particular child care needs and really didn't have the opportunity
0: to even work one day a week from home. And it seems like as we kind of clear trees to make room for more parking spots um, and, you know, looking at health care's impact on the environment and, you know, our own impact on this community – seems like a reasonable
1: approach to both decongest parking and create some more family friendly satisfaction opportunities might be to facilitate you know when appropriate some more telecommuting options right. that actually is was a topic of conversation should we really sit down with senior leaders and say try to figure out how you can have 20% of your people working from home at least a day a week how could you do that to still you know you're still going to get the work done and frankly people get pretty focused when they're at home um, to get the work done and um, and yet save the people parking and commute when i was at Leahy that was a big deal because often people commuted 20 miles but it took them 90 minutes um our people are coming probably 60 miles and it's taking them 90 minutes to get here. But still, even when you think about it, that's two or three hours out of their day that's unproductive in their car. So yeah, that's something we're talking about, is how do we actually get more remote work? So. Other questions? Now I want to thank you for making the time. I know there are a lot of other things that you could have done in this hour. But um, you know I, I do think both gender and racial diversity and our leadership groups are really important. One thing I didn't mention is we actually ask all of our vendors to disclose the makeup of their boards and their leadership teams. And you could say, right now that's not affecting our decision. But frankly, when I have a vendor that I'm signing a two or $3 million contract with, I want to know that they're financially viable. And I know that diversity in leadership roles makes companies more successful. So why wouldn't I make that link of somebody that I want to have a long partnership with is also going to have the gender diversity and the racial diversity that we actually value as an organization. And they have read that we had a few say, wow, you're one of the first people that have started asking this question. But we did have another one who does some business in South Florida to say that they have already been asked by the University of Miami to actually provide that data. So we're not the only ones looking at it, but we are one of the first. All right, great. Well, thank you very much. I'll let you you.